Good morning, church family. If you have your Bible, turn to those, to the Gospel of John chapter 15. Uh, Thank you to all those that are here. And as you may have known, over the last, I don't know, year, year and a half or so, we've been slowly working our way through the Gospel of John, and we are now just in John 15. We've got a little bit while to go, and probably another two or three years, I'm sorry. Um, It's just the way it is. In uh, John 15, verses 1 through 11, and where we pick up, we're up in the upper room. John 13 through 17 is essentially the upper room discourse. And what do we find so far that his disciples, his followers, the people that have lived with him for three years, are scared, they're worried, they're tired, because they find out that their Savior, their leader, Jesus Christ, is leaving the next day. And in the midst of this fear, Jesus shares this in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. It's one giant metaphor, and it's a little bit confusing. Jesus says this in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you would bear much fruit. And so then you prove to be my disciples. Verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy would be made full. Amen. Thank you. Um, before we uh, really dive into the Gospel of John, sometimes I like to read a passage of Scripture just and then pray. I just kind of feel the prompting to pray, or to read, and then pray this famous passage. Perhaps one of you here today needs to be reminded of this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your love, that your love uh, cannot be separate from us, that no matter where we go, no matter what we face, no matter the difficult decisions that we have to make, we know that your love accompanies us to the ends of the earth. Lord, I pray for this morning. I pray that the Spirit of God would work through his word and would change our minds and our hearts. And Lord, I pray for those that are in this room. If some of us feel far from God, that we would encounter you through your word, and that if we do not believe in you as our Lord and Savior, that we would trust in you this day. 
We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. We thank you for your word. May it go forth and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, today I titled my sermon, uh, Proving Yourself to Be a True Christian. Proving Yourself to Be a True Christian. How do you know you are one? So, pop quiz, and it only has one question. What is the one way that you can tell if you are a Christian? What is the one way that you can tell the neighbor to your right or to your left is a Christian? Words can't prove it. Talk is cheap. Endurance can't prove it. Everyone endures something. A prayer that you prayed when you were five or whatever can't prove it. Passion can't prove it. Passion can disappear like, like a lightning bug's glow. An experience can't prove it. What is the one thing that proves that you are a Christian? Charisma, faithfulness, endurance, knowledge, baptism, performing miracles, evangelism, church attendance cannot prove once and for all that you are a Christian. What is the one proof if you are a Christian or not? Anybody like a banana? This is the one thing that proves if you are a Christian that the fruit, the byproducts of our life in our relationship. So let me ask you a question. What is the fruit that you are producing? Because a true believer bears fruit and abides in Christ. That's a weird phrase. What does that all mean? So let me ask you the question. Does your life, do your relationships look like this or do they look like this? This is a rotting banana that I had in my car just for this day, okay? If you would like to eat it, you're welcome to. Um, <laughs> I said, that's true, that's all that in this car, it's gross. Um, what does your life produce? Because if you are a Christian, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, your life should look like something. The fruit that you produce should look like something. A true believer bears fruit by abiding in Christ. But what does that mean? What does it mean to bear fruit? What kind of fruit should we bear? And number two, what does it mean to kind of abide in Christ? Well, that's what he talks about in John chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 15. And I'm using the New American Standard Version. Now, uh, I, you know, I, I prepare sermons all week. I really start Sunday night, Monday morning, kind of just chewing on the text for the next following Sunday. And then this past Friday morning, I woke up at 5.30. Now, I do not normally wake up that early, so it was abnormal for me. But I, uh, I just started getting into John chapter 15 and I just got to be honest, because there was just this sense of holy fear about this passage. Because, friends, listen to me. I think some of us here today think that we are believers in Jesus Christ. But there is not one shred of evidence in our lives that we are. If there is not one shred of evidence that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then perhaps you aren't one. What I see in John chapter 15, as I was just kind of unpacking this text, is I just saw a mirror that we should look at to see our own lives. 
As you turn to John chapter 15, let us kind of quickly set the stage. Let us kind of look at the stage props, the lighting, the sound, kind of which is known as the context of a passage. We oftentimes don't really pay attention to the context of a passage, but if you really think about even like a play or a movie, you really can't interpret that particular movie if you don't understand the context of which it takes place. So where are we when we come into John chapter 15? We are, like I've said at the scripture reading, we are in the upper room. John chapter 13 through 17 is called... The Upper Room Discourse. John chapter 13 introduces the tension. John 14 introduces the solution. And John chapter 15 introduces the fruition. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, then if, if you could grade the disciples' performance in the Upper Room, what grade would you give them from A to F? They would get an F minus. <laughs> get a thumbs down. Okay. Uh, they would get that uh, 50 on the paper. Why? Because in the upper room, number one, that they are self-consumed. If you remember that, what happens on the way up into the upper room? If you remember that, the, the disciples are arguing over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And what is, what's about to happen? When we enter into the upper room, it's the Thursday night before the Friday that Jesus dies. So Jesus only has 24 more hours to live. And what are they arguing? They're not arguing about, they're not talking about the kingdom of God and Serving it, they're talking about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Number one, they're self-consumed and in the upper room. Number two, that they are embarrassed. Jesus then hears them arguing over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And I can just see Jesus going like this right here, just kind of rubbing his eyes. Okay, I just want to zap these people. Um, And then what does Jesus do? He then gets up, he walks to the porch, gets his water pitcher, he grabs a bowl. He walks back inside, he places the bowl underneath each of their feet, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet, giving them an example to follow. And this, in a sense, embarrasses them. Allow me to just share, uh, being a Christian, being a believer in Jesus Christ, is not about you. We live in a very consumeristic culture at large, and that unfortunately infiltrates the church as a whole in America, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, and love is always selfless. In the upper room, they are self-consumed, they are embarrassed. Number three, that they are confused. Why? Because their best friend named Judas all of a sudden gets up from dinner, he runs out of the room, and then he betrays the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver, and in modern day terms, that's about a thousand dollars. So Judas betrays the Son of God, the Savior of the world, for a thousand dollars. Their friend cannot, named Judas, cannot overlook the disappointment that he has with God, and then he turns his disappointment into greed. But if you think about it, Judas is the smartest of the bunch. Because he is the first one to realize God's plan, that Jesus does not come, come to establish an earthly kingdom at that time. But Jesus understands that he, Jesus plans to die and to raise again. And then Judas realizes this and he sells out. He cashes in his chips. He spends three years with the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, the, the Savior of the world. He spends three years and sells out for a thousand dollars to get what he can. In the upper room, number four, that they are scared. John chapter 14, verse 1 says this. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The fact that Jesus would even say in John chapter 14, verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. What does it, what does it do? It, that tells us that the disciples are terrified. They're worried. Why? 
Because their world is falling apart, that this man that they've spent three years following, they have walked away from a family fishing business. One of them have walked away from a promising career as a tax collector, and that this man that they have followed, that they have loved, that they have spent time with is leaving. They are scared. Their world is falling apart. Their best friend betrays Jesus. Their leader amongst the twelve denies Jesus, and then their Savior is leaving. But when they worry... When they are troubled, what are they forgetting? They are forgetting that Jesus is egoemi. They are forgetting that Jesus is the Son of God, the Creator of all things. We drag that into our world. When we worry, what are we forgetting? That Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is not just a prophet, but that He is God, holding the world in the hollow of His hands, organizing the events of your life for His glory and our good. As I would like to say, the disciples in the upper room in John chapter 13 through 16 are kind of uh, a hot mess. We would say, in other words, they're a dumpster fire, okay? That they fail miserably. And how does Jesus respond to their failure, to their embarrassment, to their fear, to their trouble, to their worry? He doesn't shame them. He comforts them. And only a God of love gives comfort in the midst of failure. John chapter 14, verse 2, he tells them that he's going to prepare a place. In verse 3 of 14, he says he will return. In verse 6, he tells them that they have the truth. In John chapter 14, verse 14, he tells them that he will answer their prayers. And in John chapter 14, verses 6 through 31, he tells them that he is sending a helper, a comforter, to guide them in all truth. I wonder about you today. How many of you have ever felt like the disciples? How many of you ever felt self-consumed, humiliated, worried, embarrassed, or troubled? God is not the one whispering in your ear the shame of your sin and the shame of your struggles, but he is the one that has come to you in his word, promising that he, all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. But maybe the disciples just need a little bit of change of scenery. If you noticed last week, and thank you, Harvey, for preaching through the end of chapter 14. If you have your Bible, quickly look at chapter 14, verse 31. Perhaps the disciples just need a change of of pace. So this is what it says in verse 31. But so that the world may know that I I love the Father, I do not exactly... I do as exactly as the Father has commanded me. And then what does it say at the end of verse 31? Get up, let us go from here. So Jesus, in John 13 and 14, he leaves the upper room into John chapter 15. And then he takes a trip with his disciples walking down those stairs, walking through the city of Jerusalem on their way to the Mount of Olives. And on that Thursday night, I can just picture at the end of John 14, at the end of that conversation, Jesus walks down those steps. He's walking through the streets of Jerusalem on the way up to the Mount of Olives that Thursday night. And what happens in the Mount of Olives? That is where the disciples fall asleep, if you remember that story. I mean, could you imagine Jesus once again, okay, this is the last time I'm going to talk to you guys, but you're napping at this hour. And then they, what happens else on the Mount of Olives? He ends up in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he sweats drops of blood, and then his friend Judas sells him out for a thousand pieces or a thousand dollars and Judas betrays him with a kiss so when we enter into John chapter 15 where are we I just imagine that Jesus is walking through the streets of Jerusalem on the way up to the Mount of Olives and then Jesus spots a vine 
He sees a vine. And the master communicator sees that vine on the streets of Jerusalem, and he uses it as an object lesson to teach his disciples. Notice verse 1. So Jesus, standing there next to the vine, says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser or gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he then prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides on the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus spots a vine, and he tells these verses. Now, if you're confused as to what's really going on here in verses 1 through 4, then you're not alone. It is kind of a confusing web of logic and truth. But clearly, one of the first things that we can notice is that this is a gigantic metaphor, that Jesus is not literally a grapevine, but he is using it as a metaphor. He says that he is the vine. Now, you've got to keep in mind that Jesus lives in an agrarian culture, that he, 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 uses, he lives in a culture where they grow grapes and olives and things like that. So he uses those often to kind of illustrate his sermon points. Now, similarly to me in Huntsville, I might use a missile or sports for illustrations. Jesus uses agriculture to demonstrate his point. And notice that in the beginning of verse 1, he says, I am the vine, the true vine. In the original language, it does not really say, I am the true vine. What it literally says, it says, Ego Amy, the vine, the true one. Now, if you've been here for any length of time in the Gospel of John, then you probably know where I'm going to go real quickly. I'm not going to belabor the point. But here at the beginning, he says, Ego Amy, which means what? Ego means I, and then Amy means I am. And Jesus, what is Jesus doing when he says those two words? He's associating himself to be Yahweh, or he's associating himself to be the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, where it says, I am who I am. That Jesus is not just a person, he's not just a prophet, but that he claims himself to be God, the Son of God. Now, if that confuses you, that's okay, but it is abundantly clear in the Gospel of John. Let me just share another verse. John chapter 8, verse 24 says this, Why is it important for us to believe that Jesus himself is God? He says this, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am Yahweh, I ego Amy, you will die in your sins. I'm not making this stuff up. Jesus claims himself to be Yahweh, to be the Son of God, to be God himself, that if we believe in him as God, then we shall be saved. But if you notice in John chapter 15, verse 1, I'm going to unpack that a little bit more. Jesus says, Ego Amy, the vine, the true one. What does that insinuate? It insinuates that there are false vines. And there are. If you actually look throughout our culture, there are other prophets and teachers and religions that promise eternal life. But Jesus is exclusive. He is the true vine. And truth in and of, of itself and its nature is exclusive. Jesus is the vine, the true one, and what does that mean? That he is the only connection to eternal life. That if you want to have eternal life, if you want to know what it means to walk with God, if you want to know what it means to have a changed earthly life, then you must connect to Jesus Christ by faith in him. Recently in my backyard, I had this uh, vine growing up, 
onto my fence. And uh, it, it was not invited there. I did not place it there. And so what do, what do I do? If you have a vine growing up on the side of your house, what's the best way to get rid of it? Do you trim the branches? Do you spray a bunch of Roundup on it? Please don't do that, by the way. It's not a good idea. Um, what do you do? You cut it at the base. What I see here in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, is that Jesus is our connection to life. He has come to give us life and to give it abundantly. So Jesus is our connection to eternal life and an abundant earthly life. And then it says, the Father is the vine dresser, that he is the gardener. Notice verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. The Father is looking at us, the branches. And if we do not bear fruit, he what does he do? He cuts it off and throws it Away And in verse 6, it, he piles up all of the dead branches, and then he burns them. So if Jesus is the vine, the Father is the gardener, then who are the branches? Now, I've studied this text before. I've taught through the Gospel of John before, and I was always confused at who the branches really are. The branches here are anyone that claims to be a follower of Christ. The fruitful branches are those who are true believers, and the unfruitful branches are those who are believers. Friends, I believe this. I believe that churches are probably more more full of people who look the part than are the part. I believe churches are full of people that truly think that they are believers in Jesus Christ, but when they would actually look at their life and the fruit that they produce, I almost guarantee you that so many people in churches today aren't true believers in Jesus Christ. Just because you may think that you're a Christian doesn't mean you are one. Just because you have come to church every Sunday morning, and have acted the part doesn't mean you are a true believer in Jesus Christ. If you, listen, here's a mirror. If your life is not producing fruit, then you are not a true believer. That's what he's saying here. That the branches are all those who claim to be a follower of Christ, but the branches that are dead and do not bear fruit are not true believers. Now, who is he talking about particularly here? He's probably talking about Judas, that the eleven are fruitful, that they are true believers in Jesus Christ. But Judas was cut off as the son of perdition, and he was cut off, and he was burned, so to speak. If you're not producing fruit, then you are not a true believer. I, I had an epiphany this week that only those who bear fruit are true followers of Jesus Christ. This reminds me of the wheat and tares parable. But what's the fruit? If you are looking at your life and you're trying to figure out if you're a true believer, if you are a branch that is actually connected to the vine and is alive, we know that we're supposed to bear fruit, but what fruit should we produce? There's only one. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 says what? The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit that a true believer reproduces, creates, is love from their life. 
That is the pro- produce that should come from our lives every day. Let me just be blunt. If your life is void of love, if you cannot love your neighbor as yourself, if you do not know what it means to love God, if your life is full of strife and envy and jealousy and slander and gossip, if your life is full of conflict and not love, what does that mean? It means that you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. A true believer bears the fruit of love. And if you think about this idea of love, is that true? Am I, am I, am I, am I biblically correct that the one fruit of the Spirit, the one fruit that we are to produce is love? I want you to just think about the context of the upper room. What has he talked about over and over and over again? Yes, he's talked about the Spirit of God in John 14 and John 16. But what else has he talked about? John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, All men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. In John chapter 15, verse 12, he then talks about the fruits that you are to produce if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ and the fruit that we know is love. And then right after this passage, he talks about in verse 12, This is my commandment to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one will lay down his life for his friends. The one fruit that we are to produce as a true believer in Jesus Christ is the fruit of love. You know, we, especially in this town, I'll just say it that way, I, I'm the son of an engineer and um, this is what we do. Um, I, I have engineer tendencies for my father. Um, but we really like to overcomplicate everything. Can I get an amen to that one? I mean, let me just say, we like to overcomplicate everything. Can I get an amen to that one? Amen. Thank you. you. Think about the Christian life. We overcomplicate it like crazy. We make it all about what it's not. We make the Christian life about a performance, a shell that we put up for everybody else to see so they will not see the real me. We make the Christian life of just about serving or just about evangelizing. Those are wonderful things. But evangelism and serving and making a difference for the kingdom of God, if it's not done out of a motivation of love, then it is dried up. The Christian life is actually quite simple. That The one fruit that we are to produce is love. And from the attitude of love, we should then serve and disciple and evangelize. How do we prove that we are a true follower of Jesus Christ by bearing the fruit of love, but the fruit of the Spirit is love? But let's just ask the question, how do we then bear fruit? Notice verse 4 of chapter 15. Abide in me and I in you. Really, that is kind of the linchpin of the whole passage. He tells them that they are to bear fruit, but how do they bear fruit? By abiding in me and I in you. And if you notice that there, there are actually kind of two different pieces of that. It's really a conditional statement, abide in me and I in you. But only one of, that, one of those two phrases is actually conditional. Because what do we already know? That Jesus Christ, that the Spirit of God already is indwelling inside of us, that He is our helper, that He is our comforter, that He is already inside of us. That, but so what is dependent for us to bear fruit? That we ourselves must decide to then abide in Christ. You must abide in Him to produce the fruit of love. But then if you notice the text in verse 5, so you have verses 1 through 4, and then you kind of have this 
uh, repeat of the same verses in 5 through 8, but there is a significant difference between the restatement and the statement original. Verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the lake of fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What's the difference between verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 8? Verses 5 through 8 have added results. Number one, in verse 5, that if you do not abide in Christ, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if you do not abide in Christ, you are cut off and burned. Verse 7, result number 3, if you then abide in Christ, your prayers will be answered. Result number 4, if you abide and bear fruit, then you prove to be my disciples. That phrase, you prove to be my disciples, at the end of verse 8 is the, is the point of the whole passage. He is telling them on the streets of Jerusalem, what is the difference between them and Judas? That true branches, true followers of Jesus Christ create, produce fruits of love and false disciples do not. Friends, you can think that you are a Christian, but if you do not produce the fruit of love, you are not a Christian. Let me say it a different way. Those who claim the cross but do not have the fruit of love are not claimed by the cross. Let me say that again. Those who claim the cross but do not have the fruit of love are not then claimed by the cross. As I've already said, we make Christianity all about what it's not, and there will be people that thought that they were believers in Jesus Christ because they went to church, because they prayed a prayer, or because they were a good person. But friends, there are not enough good works that we can stack on top of each other to earn our way into heaven. Why? Because God is perfect and we aren't. There will be people at the end of all times that will be very confused. They think that they are believers in Jesus Christ, but they are not. I mean, what does it say in Matthew chapter 7? Jesus is speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but he who does the will of the Father who is, who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You can cast out demons, you can perform miracles, you can claim the cross, you can be a good person, you can go to church every Sunday morning and still end up in hell. Why? Because none of those things save you. Doing good works does not save you. Faith does. Performing miracles does not save you. Faith does. Claiming the cross of Christ does not save you. Faith does. This, is, this passage is, a, is just a solid reality check. It is a solid mirror. And he is telling the disciples... Branches that do not bear fruit of love are not of me. But if you, if you abide in me, then you will bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Verse 8. But we have to answer a question. 
What does it mean to abide in Christ? What does that actually mean? Notice verse 10. So there's kind of this, there are three sections to this passage. There's 1 through 4 is a statement, and then 5 through 8 is a restatement with some results that are added onto it. And then verses 10 through 11 is kind of how we abide. I mean, how do we remain? That word abide is the Greek word meno, which means to remain or to abide or to have nutrients from God, so to speak. Verse 10. This is how we abide. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Notice the conditional statement followed by, there's a cause and then an effect. Cause, if you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. How does a Christian abide in Christ? It says that we must keep his commandments. There is a cause and an effect. It says, notice that last verse says, you will abide in my love. That word abide, I've already mentioned, is minnow, but it's a future tense. I'm about to get all Greek nerdy on all of you right now. The, the, the word abide there is, is a Greek word minnow, but it's a future tense indicative mood. Indicative mood, what, is, what in the world am I talking about? Okay, the indicative mood is the mood of certainty. That if you keep his commands, if you obey him, then you will certainly abide in him. If you keep his commandments, you will abide in him and you will produce the fruit of love. If you want to leave a legacy, obey God. If you want people to remember you, Respect you at your funeral, obey God. If you want your children to look at you as their hero, obey God. If you want to please God, then obey Him. But how do we know? You know, there's a... How do we know what to obey? How do we know what what commandments we should keep? That's a really good question. Because if I'm saying that in order for me to bear fruit, I must abide in Him. The only way I can abide in Him is by obeying Him. Then let's ask the question. What am I supposed to do? How do I know what God wants? I, uh, my, I have three young girls, and um, somebody recently told me that I'm a dodo, and I didn't really understand what he was talking about. I was, felt a little insulted. And then he said, uh, you're a dad of girls only, or dad, or dad of daughters only, so I'm a dodo. That's what they're going to call me the rest of my life. Um, but how do my daughters know how to, what I want? How do they know how to obey me? By spending time with me. My daughters know the difference between, hey, Bryn, and Bryn. How do they know the difference in my tone? How do my daughters know what I want as their father? By spending time with me. Friends, listen to me. You were designed to know God. You were designed to have a relationship with the Lord. Then in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve heard the noise of God and hid themselves. How do they know that noise? They know it because they spent time with Him. The only way to truly keep His commandments is by spending time with God. I mean, just imagine this. Imagine if my own children only spent one hour with me on a Sunday morning. Would they really know how to obey me 
Of course not. I'd be a complete stranger. They see people in school more than that. The only way that we truly know what God wants from our lives is by spending time with Him. But, okay, so how do we spend time with Him? Three ways. We spend time with Him in prayer. What is prayer? It is a two-way communication with God. Every Sunday morning at 845, we have a group of men and elders and, and young men that come together and pray to the Lord. We are having a conversation with Him. That is how we know what God wants, number one. Number two, we know what God wants from us when we spend time in His Word. His Scripture is our guidebook. It is our roadmap to how to live our lives. And number three, we know how to obey God because we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. The Spirit of God, we kind of understand prayer we kind of understand, okay, that, that we should read our Bibles, and that's what we should live by, and, and that's our guidebook. We, we kind of get that aspect, but then we really, this Spirit of God thing is kind of a mystery. It's kind of this thing we really don't understand. But in the upper room, what does it say? That Jesus sent his, the Spirit of God who is a comforter, who is a helper, who is a guide, who is somebody that is coming inside of you if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. He dwells in you. He seals your soul for the day of redemption. He is your helper. He is your paraclete. He is your come-alongsider. And he is the one that will guide you into all truth. If you struggle to really bear the fruit of love, then just let me ask you a question. Do you spend time with the Lord? This is not a shame fest. I'm not, I'm not the, little, the little devil on your shoulder that's trying to shame you right now. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to ask. This, this sermon is a mirror, like I've already told you. If you struggle to produce fruit of love, if you struggle to even understand what I'm even talking about today, then let me ask you a question. Do you spend time with him? Do you abide in the vine? Do you keep his commandments? Do you supplicate? Do you walk by the Spirit? And do you know and obey the Scriptures? Because a true believer bears the fruit of love by abiding in God, by supplication, by the Spirit, and by obeying His Word. That's the point of the passage. Just figured it out. There you go. The true believer bears the fruit of love by abiding in Christ through prayer, through His Word, and through walking by the Spirit. The only source of life in this world the only way that we can truly feel alive, the only way that we truly bear fruit beyond the grave is through abiding in the vine and bearing the fruit of love, which is singular. You know, friends, um, the only source of life is Jesus Christ. If you find if you try to find something else to give you satisfaction outside of him, you will find nothing but a mouthful of sand. We all, including true believers, we all struggle to not use the tools of the world to make us feel alive. What does it say in verse 11 of John chapter 15? These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full.
If you're trying to find joy outside of God, then you will be sorely disappointed. We try all sorts of things to feel the joy of God. We try food. Amen? Anybody else comfort eating in this room? This guy right here, man. When I had a hard day, you know what I like to eat is Little Rosie's, amen, and a big, juicy cheeseburger. Okay, anybody else relate to that one? And then I hit the gym for like three hours. Okay. We, we look for ways to have joy outside of God. We try food. We, we try products. We buy makeup, or we buy an iPhone, or we buy an iPad, and we have that little spurt of joy that quickly wears off. We try coffee or medication. But friends, if, you're, if your life is lacking joy, let me just say it this way. You're probably trying to find that joy outside of God. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be overflowing and full. A true Christian stays connected to the vine and bears fruit. A true follower bears the fruit of love by abiding in Christ through prayer, through his word, and by walking by the Spirit. This is the question I asked myself this week. What fruit am I producing? What is around me? What do my coworkers think? What does my family think? What do my friends think? What do my parents think? Would they say that I bear the fruit of love? Or would I just brew the fruit of conflict and strife? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. Just listen to what I'm about to read. If you, if you don't think that the theme of love is the theme of the Bible, then just hang on. John thirteen thirty four, a new commitment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 1 John 4, 8. Ooh. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Matthew chapter 22. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in all the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. If I am ever known for anything in my life, I hope it is for the message of love. The fruits of love is the mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. More than words, more than actions, more than revivals, more than evangelism, more than works, more than charisma, more than passion, more than knowledge, more than rules, more than performance, more than faithfulness, more than, more than sincerity. Love is the one fruit of the Spirit, and that is the one fruit that we should exude with our lives at all times. A true disciple bears the fruit of love, but must then by abiding in the Spirit of God, abiding in Christ, by praying, by the Word, and by walking through the Spirit. His love for me compels me then to love Him and love others. Um, I'm going to... I'm moving on to a different subject. Um, real sharp transition. If, if you feel far from the Lord, if this is foreign to you, if you are really confused because I had bananas up on stage and I was talking about fruit and stuff like that, 
If you just if you are like that today, then maybe you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. The gospel is this that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. You're saved by Christ from the penalty of your sin. John Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me just be blunt. If you have never in your life taken a moment to just place your faith in Jesus Christ, then you're probably not a believer, that you are not redeemed. If you have never taken a moment to do that, then today is a great opportunity to do so. If you want to become a true believer in Jesus Christ, what I would encourage you to do is just kind of pray. Say something like this to the Lord. Say, Lord Jesus, I know that you are my Savior. I know that you forgive me for my sins, and I believe in you as my Lord and Savior and transform my life today. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've never believed in Him, if you've never surrendered to Him as your Lord and Master, then I encourage you to do so and believe. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I, um, this passage is kind of confusing. It's um, all over the place in a sense. And um, Lord, I pray for the true believers in Jesus Christ, that we would be marked by our love for people and our love for you. And Lord, I pray for those that are cut off, for the, for the branches that are, do not bear fruit, or for those that do not even claim the cross of Christ, that do not know you as their Lord and Savior. I pray today that you would soften their hearts, open their minds to receive the truth, that you are the Savior of the world, the Son of God, and that if I believe in him, I shall be saved. And Lord, I know I share the gospel every Sunday morning, and I pray that it would never grow old to us in here today. I pray that, that we would live by the gospel and be grateful for it at all times. Lord, I thank you for my church. I thank you for all those uh, that are here and all those that are sick. And there are many, many people that attend church here that are sick. And, and I just pray for protection for them. Be with the families that are grieving, just all the funerals that have been happening recently. And I just thank you for all the ways that you are working in us. I pray that we trust in you and bear the fruits of love. I lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.